0: We're doing archaeologists, right? But we kind of did, we almost almost did an archaeologist-themed episode for April Fool's Day, just kind of by random chance. Because we only know archaeologists.
1: Newsflash, if you thought that the April Fool's thing was us putting on funny voices, it was not. It was not. (laughs) We let three of our friends take over the show and pretend to be us. And we let them pick any ladies that they wanted since the theme was just going to be April Fools. And because they're all in our field, our three friends all picked like archeologically related, not all archeologists, but like archeological based type stuff. So, Mm -hmm. yep. Hilarious. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women.
0: Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Hey, Lexi, if you could excavate anywhere, where would it be? Your mom, just (laughs) (laughs) kidding.
1: If I could excavate anywhere, like there's no moral repercussions or like cultural repercussions, like I can just do whatever I want. Anywhere you want. If I can just do whatever I want, I really want to excavate North Korea. All the juicy good Korean archaeology is in North Korea, and you can't go there as an American and dig holes. So North Korea, the whole thing, not just one site.
0: And Haley, what's the cringiest thing about old-timey archaeology?
2: There's so many things. This this is a question that I wish I was prepared for. <laughs> the whole point is you're not prepared. I know. I am all knowing. I'm god in this game. I think like. Don't wear the artifacts you find. A la Sophie Schliemann. That is very cringe. She, like, she wore it wrong. And
0: exactly. she wore it wrong. Like,
2: you wear it wrong, it just looks she weird. wore it wrong. Or or probably she wore gonna like, break. the earrings get... wrong. Yeah.
0: She wore the earrings wrong, supposedly, so that she could wear more of them at once. And I'm Alana, and people across continents, cultures, and centuries are essentially the same. All right, so what are we going to talk about here? Okay, so we have a couple of interview yeah. questions for you. First of all, hello, hi listeners. <laughs> we have a, a very special guest today for the first time in a while. Um, real life archaeologist, <laughs> Dr. Susan Johnston, who the, all three Thank of you. us, had you. A, we all had a class with her at some point, and I multiple. actually went on a dig
2: with her. Yeah, multiple. So who is her favorite? All right, let's not make that one of the questions. I, I love, love all, all my students, students awesome. equally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so
0: our first question is, what inspired you to be an archeologist?
3: Ooh, so that's a funny story, actually. So it's a combination of things, but in the literal direct sense, it's because I was too lazy to walk up a hill. I swear to God, that is true. So, so I, my BA is in English. And I was really into like books and literature, and I really like Shakespeare and stuff like that. Yeah, I did my junior year abroad at Durham University in England. And so um, their system is a little bit different. So the classes are more spread out, um, and they're not, they don't always facilitate like going long distances between them. So I had a class that um, I really wanted to take on Shakespeare. And so the other class that I wanted to take, which I think was in social psychology, if I remember correctly, um, was at the top of a hill and like a, like a Dunalanya type hill, <laughs> which Alana, Alana knows well, right? So you can explain yeah. later what that is. Um, so even like booking it, if I had, I would still have to have left the first class early and that would still have made me go get to the second class late. So I was like, screw this. I got to find something else to do. So I was looking around for a class to take and this class on Egyptology was open. And I was like, all right, what the heck? So I signed up for this class in Egyptology and I just, it was fantastic. I loved it. I loved everything about it. And so by the time I got back my senior year, it was kind of too late. I mean, I guess I could have changed my major, but I would have had to stay extra time and so on. So I was like, I'm not gonna do that. So I finished out the BA. They didn't offer a minor in anthropology, which I could have taken, but they didn't offer one. So yeah, that is literally how I ended up. I was like, this is fantastic. And that story is particularly funny because my father is an anthropologist. I don't, I don't know if you guys know this, but my father was a biological anthropologist and uh, yeah, shout out to dad, he died in 2020, it was very sad. Yeah. He was a biological anthropologist, and I mean, when I was a kid, like we lived in England for a year when i did I did third grade in England, and he like took us to all these like archaeological sites and stuff, and I was like, there's a family joke in my family about um, Roman walls because like it's like we're gonna go see a Roman wall and like cool, and we get there and it's like a pile of rocks, which when you're eight is like boring so um it's utterly hilarious that not only did I, it never occurred to me to do archeology span when I was raised by an anthropologist. <laughs> but um, not only that, I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania for graduate school and my father was the department chair, which is even funnier. Yeah. And the best part of this story is I applied to graduate school. Um, it's a long and involved story and probably perfectly legitimate, but I got turned down the first time I applied. Um, so I reapplied and I went the next year and it was all good, but my father was the graduate like advisor. And so I have a signed rejection letter from my father because he was the one that, that, and by the time I got the letter, like I knew about it, but this was back in the old days when you actually got physical letters, you know? So yeah, I have a signed rejection letter from my father telling me I can't, I was not accepted to the graduate school in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. It worked great because, um he and I were about as far apart you could be and still be in the same discipline. So his specialty was actually studying living people. So he was interested in like the interaction between biology and culture. And he worked in Guatemala for a long time and was sort of looking at like issues of nutrition and like how people made cultural decisions about who got food and, you know, that kind of stuff. Whereas I was interested in, you know, long dead people. So, you know, it was, we, I did have to take a class from him because it was a first year program, but it was great because, you know, I I took it, I think I did officially audit it rather than get a grade because that just seemed to bridge too far. So anyway, yeah, so that was, that was how I got into archaeology. It was because I I just, I took this course in Egyptology and it was just, I loved it. I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I, I loved literature. I loved my English major, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. Like I didn't want to do any of the obvious like journalism. I toyed briefly with going to law school you know, that's about it.
0: But yeah, then I took this
3: class and I was like, now I know what I want to do. So there you go. Danal
0: and yeah, the dig site that we went on to for context listeners is at the top of this, like
3: hill. And it's it not, was... it's like, if you look at it on a map, it doesn't look, it's really not that steep in the sense of like a rugged vertical. Oh, I have.
2: Face. And I thought you guys were like, full I was yeah. like, this isn't
3: a hill. <laughs> yeah, oh no. But if you walk up it, it's a steady, it's just enough. I I can't make it up about, I could make
0: it up about halfway, and then I have to stop and catch my breath. Are there any women archaeologists who you look up to, who you currently look up to, who you looked up to in the past? I know it's like a very male-dominated field, so this is going to be a, an interesting question. Well,
3: it, so it is and it isn't. It's an interesting, it's a more complicated question, which I know you guys know, seeing here, sitting here with three female former students. I mean, it's that, it's a classic situation in which there's a ton of women but they they still don't make it to the top. And why that is is complicated, you know. I mean, some of it is straight up sexism, I'm sure. Some of it is more complicated things like, you know, women are expected to take care of children. It took me years. And actually, shout out to a guy named Shannon McFerrin who will probably never hear this, but he and I were graduate students together and he had a position at GW for like a year, like 10 or 15 years ago. And it was very difficult for me. To figure out how to take kids while I did field work, right? I had two small children. I mean, my kids were born in 99 and uh, 96. So, you know, when I started looking to try to do field work in the early 2000s, I was like, how am I going to do this with two little kids? My husband couldn't realistically look after them because he had to go to work every day. I could have paid for daycare in the summer, but that's expensive. So, you know, it was a whole big thing. And Shannon actually said, Susan, what are you doing? The problem is you're trying to do it by yourself, get a team of people together. And try to do it that way. And then you've got support people. I'm like, oh, that's a really good idea. I never thought about that. Good idea. you know. And so, yeah, I ended up did um, remote sensing at the site between 2006 and 2008. And I literally, I took my kids up. Um, I put up a tent. I was like, you guys can go anywhere you want in the site. They were like, whatever, you have to do the math. 2006. So Kate was 10 and Nick would have been 8 seven or eight. And uh, I was like, you can go anywhere you want. Don't go outside the bank and ditch, which encircles the top of the hill. So it's kind of good delimiter. I'll see you guys at lunch. Could I scream? It's not fair. And it's sexist for, for society to assume that as a woman, I'm going to take care of the kids. Yes, absolutely. But personally, I also felt that, I mean, eventually women are going to have to break through into the top just because numerically, there are so many of us. I mean, you guys all know, you know, GW classes are mostly female you know, overwhelming, I taught theory one year, there was one guy and 20 women. So, you know, I mean, it, it yeah, he had a lot to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're doing gender today, and you have to come to class. Um, so, you know, it was like, there are a lot of women in the field. And I will say, there have always been a lot of women. in. I mean, I admire, I admire a lot of those women who did that work when it wasn't a, a thing to do. I mean, yeah, they were wealthy and white. So they had advantages. All of my colleagues at GW, are terrific women. I adore Alison Brooks with every fiber of my being. I, she is a terrific woman. She's incredibly smart. She's very caring. And you know she does far more work than she should. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I, you know, she's a she's you know she's terrific. All of the, you know, Lilana Feldman, I mean she's not an archaeologist, but you know, Sarah Wagner, they're they're all really terrific um, kind of supportive women. You know, Atiyah Ahmad, who's also sociocultural, um, you know, who I see fairly regularly and are very are very supportive of each other, which I also think is really cool, you know, when they could easily be competitive. So yeah, I, pretty much any woman in archaeology I admire. <laughs> I mean, you know, the older the better because it was harder then. It's always been a field that attracts particularly like physical women, because of field work, women who like to be outside, and, and I think they tend to also be really, which is not to say you can't be strong if you work in a library, but I just, you know, they're very, they're always very kind of strong, no-nonsense women, and, you know, I, I admire them enormously. They had to do that stuff. I mean, you know, it's relatively easier, easier <laughs> for you guys, you know, to do this kind of stuff because of what they did. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say absolutely I admire
0: them. I guess related to that, what has been your experience being a a woman in a kind of male-dominated field, especially field work? Yeah, so I have
3: to say, I mean, honestly, if I tell stories about sexism, it's more from graduate school than it is from being a grown-up. I don't want to say that in any way that there isn't sexism in academia because there is, but people are far more aware of it and are less open about it. I my guess is in your average corporate business setting you have to deal with a lot more crap than you do in faculty meetings or things like that, just because people are, are socialized to be more aware of those things. I was thinking about this because when you guys asked me to come, I was like, you know, how, how have I experienced sexism in archaeology? <laughs> and I can't pinpoint anything big. I've never managed to get high-level funding, but that's also probably because I work in Ireland and nobody cares about Ireland, at least not in in archaeology. You know, I I can't say that that's because I'm female. I mean, you know, it could be, but I, I, I have no proof of that. I have no evidence that that's true. My best, oh my god, I can't believe you just did that stories, are things like, I worked at University of Rhode Island for seven years, I think, something like that, And we ran a program that we did contract archaeology, but through the university in Rhode Island. And I worked with a guy named Russ Hansman, who is a wonderful human being. And he's about 10 years older than me, I think but we both have the same credentials, right? We both have a PhD, et cetera. And we were, at this, we were at this function at Rhode Island and we were introduced to a bunch of administrative people and we were both introduced, this is Dr. Susan Johnston, this is Dr. Russ Hansman, to these people. And this woman, I don't know what, I don't remember anymore what she was. But she turned and she said something and she said, oh, Dr. Hansman, it's nice to meet you. And Susan, it's nice to meet you too. And I'm sort of going, huh. And the reason that I adore Russ Hansman, one of the many reasons, he is the one that corrected her. Mm. And he was like, I think you should probably call her Dr. Johnston, don't you? And she was like, blah, 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 (laughs) blah. Until otherwise told, Dr. Johnston. It's the death by a thousand cuts stuff. My other good story is somebody said to me, an older male archaeologist, somehow, and I do not remember the context, and it's probably important because otherwise the story sounds really weird, but we're talking about field work and his comment was women who are working in the field should not wear white t-shirts because they can't help getting dirty in certain places and it attracts the workmen, it distracts the workmen. And what he meant by that is just because of female anatomy, it is true you tend to come against like dirt, basically your breasts, right? You, you, you hit sure. dirt there before you hit then, until you back up, right? And so you end up with these dark circles. That's a you problem, not a me problem. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm the kind of person where if, if it's just a dumb thing like that, it's like, yeah, that's a you problem. I don't care. You know, it mm-hmm. doesn't impact me. That's the kind of stuff that, you know, women deal with
0: all the time. So what are the best and worst parts of being an archaeologist?
3: Oh, the
0: best parts? So I can tell
3: you, what I can tell you is what I like about my job, which is I love teaching. You can argue the point, call me bossy, because what the hell? Um, You know, I like explaining stuff. I like, you know, I like, I like turning people on to interesting new things, That really, I enjoy that. I like hanging out with you guys because it (laughs) keeps me from getting old and crotchety, Um, (laughs) you know, and I like academia. I have worked outside of academia before and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not, I like the environment. I like the academic environment. I love being in the field mostly because it's hard, which sounds stupid, but it's like, I like the, I, I've reached the point in my life where I, there are so many things that I do now that I've done a million times before and I still enjoy them, but they're not that much of a challenge anymore. Whereas when I'm in the field, it's like constantly checking myself and learning new things and, dealing with people. And I like being outside. I like the macho element of it. I like being down in the dirt. I'm absolutely delighted sitting in holes discussing stratigraphy. I think that is so much. I really get into it. It's like doing a puzzle. That's what I like about I mean, I like the combination of intellectual stuff and physical stuff that you get with archaeology. You know, you spend part of your time in a classroom and reading and writing and that stuff. And then you spend part of your time out in dirt, trying to deal with elements and cattle and, you know, God only knows what all. So those, that's what I like. What I don't like about it is probably the same stuff most people don't like about their jobs. I don't like some of the bureaucracy that I have to deal with. I won't name names or institutions, but let's just say I'm so tired of filling out forms. And I, funding is the biggest, the thing I hate the most. I mean, it's Getting money is really, really hard, and that's fine. That's the way it should be. On the one hand, it's just archaeology. I mean, I love it, and people love it, but it's not, you know, curing cancer or catching rapists or whatever it is, right? I, it's at some level that's fine. There's a lot of arch It just—it's exhausting. Applying for money over and over and over and not getting it and not getting discouraged is really, really hard. I think that's the biggest thing, probably, that drives people out of the field frankly, the difficulties of getting a job. I mean, I've been lucky. You know, I have a husband who has a good salary, and I can afford to work part time, which I have done for the vast majority of my professional career. A lot of people can't afford to do that. And you know, they have to make a living. And you know, there's only so many jobs in archaeology, getting a job, getting funding, all that kind of stuff is the hardest part, I think, of the field. So yeah, that's the pros and cons on from my perspective.
2: What advice would you give people, I guess, like we're lady history, other ladies to who want to be in this field? And you kind of touched upon that with the job prospect, but going further, any advice?
3: What I would say is if you want to be an archaeologist, then do what you can do to be an archaeologist. If you can't, then that's the way it goes. But if you didn't try, then you don't want to, you don't want to regret at some point thinking gee, you know, I decided not to put the time in and get a PhD because I was afraid I wouldn't get a job. And I, I will say at some point in graduate school, it did occur to me that I might not get a job. And I was like, OK, fine, then I'll have a PhD. So whatever else I end up doing, at least I'll have a PhD. And that's cool.
0: Even if you don't get a job in archaeology, people still have to call you doctor the rest that's, of your life. Doctor, I'll have fries with that. Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's there's like a tiered thing which you guys are well familiar with right so i always feel like college is your you probably, i've probably given you guys at various times the same speech college is like the last time you get to do whatever you want so major in whatever you want to major in unless you want to go to med school nobody cares okay you know the fact that you have a college degree means you have a set of skills that are useful across many many different fields and so you know I would never tell anybody not to major in archaeology or anthropology because they quote won't get a job at the other end right but having said that the reality is a lot of people won't now having said that somebody gets those jobs why not you (laughs) tell you the same thing I told my son who's trying to get a job in film spend five years see it see how it goes if after five years you feel like you've been banging your head against a brick wall then give it up and do something else right at least you tried I don't feel like I can give anybody advice because the only thing I can say that got me here is persistence, but that's not enough. I also got incredibly lucky. And I will also say that even if you end up doing something else, you can always do archaeology. I mean, they're always screaming for volunteers, can do podcasts, can do lots of interesting things that are still
2: in the field, even if that's not
3: what you're getting paid for
2: what are some books you would recommend or like ways of getting that educational knowledge? Because a lot of our listeners are not archaeologists. I'm
3: trying to think of what I have read. I've read this really, I'll have to say, you know what, I'm going to send you guys a list. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, I, there was, I read a really good book recently um, about repatriation in Australia that was fantastic. I feel like there's something that I have read recently that I am not remembering that I like loved and I can't think of it off the top of my head. Uh, oh, this is a really good book, too. 1491, which is about the year should give you a clue. It's about North America. It's actually technically not about North America right before Columbus arrived. It's by Charles Mann. Yeah, that was a re- that's a really good book. I'll poke around and
0: see what I can find and send you some stuff. And we'll put those in the show notes. Cool. Probably links to local bookstores. Absolutely. Yeah. What is like the coolest or most exciting thing you've ever excavated? Like an, an artifact, a thing. I work at Denal and anything we find is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's an artifact. Oh my God, um, it's so much
3: <laughs> animal bone. <laughs> so I what I would say it's funny, it's funny what hits you. So it's I think people when people think about archaeology, they think about big flashy things, you know, like I just found this gold and oh my God. But the things that I, the two things that I always, you know, people have asked me that question before and the two things I always think of, one of them sort of makes sense and the other one I think is probably just a weird thing that was just because of the moment and me. But the first site I ever worked on was an Anglo-Saxon cremation cemetery uh, in England called Spong Hill this is going to sound weirdly macabre, but, um, you know, if you, when you excavate cremations in the past, there's a lot of big chunks of bone because they don't, now they pulverize them. So all you get is just like powder. Um, but in the past, there were these big, they're big chunks of bone. So after a while, you know, the first one is like, oh my God, that's so cool. And then after a while, it's like blase, you know, it's like, oh yeah, look, more bone. Whoa, whoa. And for some reason, which I will never understand, I was, I was excavating this one burial, and I found the centrum of a vertebra, which is the part of the vertebra, like right in the middle. And just all of a sudden, I, you know, make it mystical if you want. That's fine. But I was just like overwhelmed by the fact that this was a human being that had lived like in around 700 CE. And I was holding this person's spine in my hand. And it was just it was it was just incredibly profound in a weird kind of way. So that's that's the one thing. The other thing, weirdly enough, was a a historic site in Rhode Island that we were excavating, which was the foundations of a house. And it was it was actually really cool because it's at the train station in uh, I think it was West Kingston, I think was the name of the town in Rhode Island. The station master's house had been on this site. They had actually literally picked the house up and moved it across the road. At some point, the house was still there. It was just across the road, um, which is a very strange experience. They were going to put a parking lot in there, so they needed some people to come in and see what was there. So we excavated the foundations of the house. And we were, we were excavating. And it's probably not an accident that this hit me so much because I had little children. My kids were little at the time. We were excavating, and we found a silver baby spoon and it's the kind where it's got like a bowl at the spoon at one end and it's got a loop on the end so you can kind of hold it and it had the name Charles on it and I was like oh this is little baby Charles's spoon (laughs) it's so cool and again I was just like overwhelmed with this you know like whatever happened to Charles and um so this would have been like probably late 19th century something like that so you know it's it's just it's kind of weird things that like hit you in strange i mean we found a glass bead this past in july at denonia which is a freaking amazing shout out to james parrot at nyu who has the most amazing eagle eyes because this sucker was three millimeters in diameter it you know i don't even know how he saw it but he did aaron Crowley shampoo who is one of the supervisors uh, on the site she was just I mean, she was almost in tears. She was so excited over this teeny little glass bead. And, you know, I was like, all right, it's cool, but it's just a little blue glass bead. I mean, there's thousands of these I remember we
2: from the also the bead. So, do you like, I can't kind of talking about what you've excavated. Do you have a favorite archaeological time period or just like a happy place within <laughs> history? I, I mean,
3: I know. And the reason that I say that, I mean, what I would say is, no that's totally
2: fine i love i love to hear that i (laughs) i I am a mess when it comes to like what i love to study and what i love love to learn
3: i mean i find i mean there are things that i find really interesting and they're all over the place you know i mean i i ended up working in ireland i mean i usually tell people it's because they speak english and drink beer but that's not exactly true um but you know it it's to me that's it's really interesting um because i don't know there are things i like about i mean i like it because it's 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 always seen as on the edge of europe geographically when it really isn't it's just you know it's just in europe but um depends on how you look at the maps um but you know i it's interesting to me because of just where it is and the fact that it's an island which means weird things happen there and sometimes it's in contact with the continent sometimes it's not i really like i mean i like all of it i really do i mean there are some places I wouldn't say I don't like them, but I don't know enough about them, so I find them frustrating. Peru, for example, which is a really cool place. It's got really cool archaeology, but I just don't know enough about it. I mean, I
2: like all of it. I like everything from Neanderthals up to last week. What has been your favorite class to teach? Because you mentioned that you really enjoy teaching it and explaining something you're passionate about.
3: Most of the classes I teach, I teach because I want to. Every now and again, I get kicked one I'm like all right fine I'll teach it but I don't particularly want to I, I mean I actually I really enjoy intro because I get people who don't know a lot about archaeology or who thinks they do but they really don't and so that's fun because you know you don't have to I I, I mean I automatically know more than they do so it's very non-stressful you know <laughs> like I don't have to like you know look stuff up a lot I like the social interpretation of archaeology. I find that really really interesting. So like I teach this you know the course on myths and mysteries which is like how people interpret archaeology. I teach this one on the media which is the same thing. I an excellent I, class. Gave me
0: free access to the Mummy for an entire (laughs) semester. How many times?
3: What was it you watched over and over? I can't remember what it was. It was the Mummy. I watched Mummy three
0: times in five days. But it was
3: the Brendan Fraser one. It wasn't the one we watched in class. Oh yeah, okay, right. It's (laughs) the better one. It's the better movie. I will. I will. I'm gonna have to ask you to step outside. (laughs) I think the 1930s Mummy is far superior. Great answers. Well,
0: <laughs> thank you so much for, for coming on the this same. show. Oh, it's, my day. it's been great to, it so great to see you guys. I like, know you too. <laughs> always yeah. wonderful.
3: It's always yeah. wonderful. Yeah. You guys know where to find me. Yeah. Of course. yeah. Absolutely. I'm really glad to hear you guys. You guys sound like you're all doing really well. I'm very proud of you.
2: Thank, thank you. 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 I'm proud you of, of you as <laughs>
3: former students and I'm proud of you as women in archaeology. So there you go.
1: Sign up for our Patreon for all of the cut content from this interview and to keep getting content all November while we're taking a break. We won't be taking a break from Patreon. So prepare for your November lady history listening by becoming a patron right now. So this is very exciting for me because initially I was going to do Alice Fletcher and I was like, "God, this is like racially problematic. Like I know she do a lot of important things for the field, but like there's that's it's a hot mess. I came into the same problem. I'll, I'll give a broad blanket statement. Early archaeology, and even, let's be real, some archaeology now, do be racist. So there are not even just blatantly racist, but like some fishy cultural colonization, icky, icky poo-poo that goes on. Even women who were trowel in the field and really like, you know, made a name for themselves and did awesome stuff for science weren't very culturally considerate. So that can be difficult. So when picking my lady today, I wanted to find someone I had never heard of. And I also wanted her to be a woman of color, which, as you can imagine, is difficult, A, because I'm someone who studied archaeology in undergrad. And I obviously have heard about most of the women. And there are only so many women in the field in the early years. So it was either like do someone alive or like really dig for someone. And I also wanted to find a woman of color. And (laughs) even in 2021, archaeology is an extremely white industry, and it's very, very hard to find a woman of color who got the recognition she deserved for being an archaeologist. But guys, I did it. (laughs) To be fair, she is mixed race, but she's still a woman of color, and that is iconic. And um, I did it. I found an archaeologist I never heard of who is a woman of color. So, and I probably never heard of her because of racism. And also because I did not study Mesoamerican archaeology. I only took one class on it, it was not my favorite class. I was much more focused on the Eurasian continent in most of my studies. And Af- I did a lot on Africa because Dr. Brooks is iconic and-, and talks about Africa a lot. So I did not really get to hear about this lady. So today I will be talking about Zelia or Zelia. I think it's Zelia, so I'm going to go with that, Natal. And Zelia was born in San Francisco, California, so shout out to my region. And she was born on the 6th of September, 1857. Her father was an Irish-American doctor, and her mother was a Mexican-American whose maiden name was Parrot. And normally, I would not say the mother's maiden name because it's not really relevant unless you want to hack into someone's online bank account. But isn't that just the dopest surname you ever heard? It's a good surname. So Zelia's maternal grandfather was very famous. He was one of the most prominent bankers in the city. So she was from a wealthy family. And obviously we know that in these early archaeology times, that's how a lot of women are able to get into the field because they don't have to worry about working for a living. And at the age of eight, her parents moved her and her siblings to Europe and she received most of her education in Europe in countries such as France, Italy, and Germany. Delia at the time became fluent in Spanish, probably because her family was Mexican-American and German because she lived in Germany for a time. She then attended Bedford College, which was the first higher education college for women in London. And when Zelia was 19, her family returned to San Francisco, and it was there that she met Alfonso-Louis Pinar, a French anthropologist. They got married, and they traveled around for Pinar's work, mainly in the West Indies and Europe. And upon returning to San Francisco from traveling with her husband, Zelia discovered she was pregnant. Unfortunately, the marriage was on the rocks, and Zelia filed for divorce, like, pretty quickly after giving birth, and she was able to gain full custody of her daughter, Nadine, so Alfonso was basically out of the picture at this point. Though the marriage ended unhappily, Zelia had found a love for the practice of archaeology from her time traveling with Penard. She took a trip to Mexico with her daughter, then a toddler, and her mother and two of her siblings, and in Mexico, she conducted her first archaeological study. This was in 1884. And of course, at the time, archaeology and anthropology were almost exclusively male professions, as most jobs at the time were like your options were like be a nanny or live at home or like be a sex worker. There's your choices. You know, (laughs) I mean, it's a little broader than that. But women really struggled um, academically at this time to, to get the credentials. And many women were restricted from receiving the higher education that would make you considered a good archaeologist at the time. We're not saying you need education to be an archaeologist, but formal education was pretty much a requirement at this point. And so to be taken seriously in the field, she would have probably have needed more formal education and she didn't have it. Many women were considered amateurs because of that. And despite years of work in the field and publishing their findings and like making really big discoveries, they just weren't seen as real archeologists. Additionally, this is a time when archeology span and anthropology had yet to confront the connection with colonialism that it had. And if you think uh, it has even really confronted it at all yet, I mean, that's a debate to be had. But at this point, most certainly there was still this really big colonial cloud looming over the field and no one talked about it. So, yeah, basically the state of the archaeology at the time was like old white men digging up people of color's ancestors and acting like they were discovering something new. But then the people of color were like, we had like an oral tradition and we did be knowing that. So it was very ancient aliens before ancient aliens. And in Mexico at the time, archaeology was in a really unique place because Mexico was not a major colonial power, but they did have like some status as a nation in a way that a lot of countries that didn't have colonies at the time did not have status. Um, so Mexico was like this like middle ground player. like They weren't like this huge superpower going around and just pillaging people's shit, but they were like considered one of the big players. and. Archaeology in Mexico was being used to form a national identity, something that Mexico saw as a trait of other major nations. So they looked at countries like England or France or America, and they saw that they had these central identities of like what it meant to be from those countries. And that's part of colonialism, like convincing people to be patriotic for the country. And so they wanted to like achieve that. And actually in grad school, I read a really great piece about the Mexican National Museum's founding and how it was like nation building based. And I actually included a link to it in the further learning. So if you're curious about like that connection, so yes, Mexico is complicated because remember lots of people in Mexico are also mixed race. So they have ancestry that they can trace back to ancient civilizations, but also ancestry from white colonizers. So it's this complicated place and I could go on and on and on, but I'm trying to just kind of give a broad understanding so that you guys kind of know where Zeely is working. Now that the background's out of the way. Zelia ended up at the site Teotihuacan. If you're familiar with any level of uh, Mesoamerican archaeology, it's probably one of the sites you've heard of. It's really well known. It's like the inspiration for some scenes in Star Wars, and they like filmed some exterior shots using some of the buildings. So it's a really well known site. And it's really famous for, it has a moon pyramid and a sun pyramid that are really, really famous. Zelia studied a series of terracotta sculptures of human heads. She didn't excavate them. They had been excavated by others, but they'd not really been thoroughly documented or studied. They kind of were excavated by those kind of people who like take shit out and they're like, look, I found it. And then they don't do real science. So she came in and she did that. And she also dated the artifacts and she determined that they were from the Aztec culture around the time of colonization of their community. She was also able to determine that the heads were actually part of a larger artifact that once had bodies attached to them, but they were made of a different material that did not survive in the archaeological records. So it must have been some sort of natural material that was less survivable than the terracotta. Uh, Her theory was that the figures represented the dead. And two years after her initial trip to Mexico, she published... The terracotta heads of Teotihuacan in the American Journal of Archaeology and History of the Fine Arts. And after seeing this article, Frederick W. Putman, an American anthropologist, noticed Celia's in-depth knowledge of Mexican history and archaeology, and he invited her to be the honorary assistant in Mexican archaeology at Harvard's Peabody Museum, which is very cool that she got this role when women were often kept out of museums at this time, too. Putnam noted that Celia had developed relationships in Mexico and was also a really skilled linguist and spoke the local language. Um, You know, Spanish is a colonial language, but many people in Mexico at the time spoke Spanish. So she was able to communicate directly with them. Very cultural archeologist of her. So she was like super ahead of her time, like doing this cultural and community-based work because, you know, women usually, women are usually nice to people. Zelia and her brother, they moved to Germany, where they lived for more than a decade so that she could pursue her studies at European libraries, particularly work with early Mexican texts, which had been stolen and taken to Europe during colonization of the region. So she like found some codices and stuff like that that had previously not been documented. And after completing her research, she published a series of academic writings, which helped pull those texts out of obscurity and brought them into the canon of Mexican archaeology. And in 1905, Zelia moved permanently to Mexico. She and her daughter resided in a mansion there, which greatly benefited her research. Many archaeologists, even to this day, travel to pursue their craft because they don't live in the regions where they work. So Zelia was really ahead of her time with this whole idea of living there. And she became a part of the community in Mexico. Rather than taking her research back to like a foreign museum, the way a lot of people did, her research impacted Mexico directly and stayed in Mexico because that's where she lived. One juicy thing I found interesting is that the racists who promote, like, ancient aliens and shit might actually have exploited some of her theories. Zelia published a lot of theories, and as with anyone who publishes a lot, she published some things that turned out to be, like, unsustainable in the future. Like, other things have come up that make it seem like her theories probably aren't as supportable as she thought they were. Zelia, she published a theory that Phoenicians sailed to the New World and influenced indigenous cultures in Mesoamerica long before Ikepupu Columbus ever did. And most modern archaeologists would argue that this theory is not well wrong, but I can see the crazy ancient alien people seeing this and their gears sort of turning and um, digging this kind of thing, pun intended. Celia's main contribution to archaeology was rejecting the image of Native Mesoamericans as savages and helping many Mexicans embrace the indigenous aspects of their heritage. So a lot of these mixed-race mexicans at the time really saw like the ancient culture as savage and wanted to distance themselves from it and be like no 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 we're cool we're like european (laughs) and she was like no wait like no and she showed that ancient peoples in the region had a really strong culture that could be recorded and studied and that there was lots of evidence for and she kind of dispelled myths about savagery that was such a common thing to say about people in the past in that time and still kind of lingers today And by doing so, she allowed Mexico to realize it had a strong history and these amazing civilizations, including urban centers, had thrived on the land long before it ever became Mexico. And Zelia was also culturally engaged in doing community archaeology to some extent before it existed as a theory and practice in the field. And she built relationships with locals and learned about what their goals and needs were to help her research better serve them as people. And even though some of it's a little problematic today, it's pretty cool that she was so engaged with the people that were living where she was working. In 1928, Celia renewed the celebration of the Indigenous New Year in Mexico, a celebration which had not taken place since the time of colonial infiltration in 1519. And she was amazed that her archeological practice had created something so alive and vibrant because she was able to return traditions to a community that had lost them. An accomplishment that an individual with Mexican heritage herself must have felt like was a huge contribution to her own people. And of the revival, she wrote to a friend, quote, it is strange to have archaeology produced such lively offspring. You can imagine how happy it has made me to have extracted from the grave of the past a germ so vital and lively that it will set children dancing and singing and observing the sun each year. Celia passed away in 1932. And since then, her home in Mexico has become a museum, which now houses the National Music Library of Mexico and is run by the Mexican government. So that's pretty cool. That's it. That's Celia. And I thought it was cool because I never, ever heard of her.
2: I do love that. That was a beautiful story. I also yeah. have never heard of her. As BBC called her, it's the uncrowned queen of the desert, Gertrude Bell. I'm going to do this quick PSA of I don't agree with some of the stances. Gertrude took or the hill she died on during her career. you will understand why shortly, but as Dr. Johnston said, and I really think she manifested this because I don't know why I picked Gertrude Bell. I was just like, you know what, I'm going to pick. I have to pick out of all the lady archaeologists in general. She accomplished a hell of a lot in the field dominated by men, especially at this time. And y'all know that this is like the late 1800s. That was the norm of all men even getting just education. She was trying her best with her brilliant brain of hers. Bell's claim to fame as an archeologist was exploring mapping and policy making within now Iraq and in the name of the British empire. (laughs) Yeah, get my PSA now. Side note, archeologically, we're talking about the Middle East as a whole, like Mesopotamia, Israel, Syria, Palestine area, all that history goodness. Ron also and we'll get to that. Side side note, she lived from 1868 and then passed away in 1926. So this is colonialism that is still fresh, but considering we're talking about this in that period, it is the heyday of British colonialism for archaeology as some people like to put it. And a lot of problems with Gertrude's life as a perspective from the whole colonizer way of being, quite literally because she was one of the major players in dividing up the boundaries of a country that didn't need its boundaries to be divided up. And we see that within the Middle East and Africa. Look at the show notes, do YouTube, do do Google. I won't go into it. And I'm going to more do a vignette style of how archaeology and how archaeology played. Like, I'll be a little snarky and kind of point out, oh, no, no, boo-boos. But as Dr. Johnston said, she still did a lot of great work in the field. So our first vignette is that she was the first woman ever to earn the first degree honors in modern history at Oxford University. At the time, we're still in the realm of women not being studious, scholarly, and education. They do not be that, those things. However, Gertrude grew up in a family who accepted the idea of women doing extra in education. Lady Margaret Hall, the college she attended, was one of the few at Oxford that allowed women at this time. Really freaking cool. So our second vignette is her fascination with the Middle East, and then archaeology started within this trip to Iran. Maybe another reason why I picked her, just like deep down inside I knew I had to talk about this. The year 1892. Her uncle was a British ambassador, and she went to go visit him at the time. And before the trip, she studied Farsi and continued practicing once in Tehran, which is now Iran's capital. And let me tell you, as a person who grew up around this language, then took one semester, Farsi theoretically is closer to learning English than, like, some of the Romance languages, but it's hard as shit. You're learning, like, a whole new way of alphabets because they have like a certain script it's not the alphabet you're used to if you're coming from an English language perspective hard as shit applaud applaud because in one of the letters she wrote and this is kind of prelude to my because she wrote quote there are at least three sounds almost impossible to the European throat end quote. And this trip was also the catalyst to her continuing to study archaeology. She was able to publish, and she did, publish a travel book of Iran and translations of poems that many still consider to be like the best translations or like translations that are very easy to digest. They're in the show notes. TBH, I can't recommend them as translations because again, can't translate Farsi myself, but I'll take it from people who have read these translations said, yep, those are pretty good. And now for our third vignette is a deeper dive into the archaeology hole that we've dug. She is the only woman to be working for the British government within the Middle East at this time. Again, amazing, like taking down those sexism barriers with her trowel one pick at a time. So, you know, the book Lawrence of Arabia. We won't get into that colossal shit show, but T. E. Lawrence, she worked with him when in the when the British called like the Arab Bureau during World War One. So during this war, they were basically gathering and analyzing info to funnel to the British about what the Ottoman Empire—yes, Ottoman Empire was still alive and well during this time. So. Don't quote me on this because this is more where history gets mumble jumbled and my research kind of like you have to stop at some point sort of thing. I don't think they or just Mr. Lawrence did a good job of it because there are like a bunch of different plot points in this where the British just like weren't doing well in this. And it kind of like all signs led to like their research or like what was happening in the Middle East or whoever in the British system so like i don't want to be like gertrude what did you do but also like i think it's funny that some of the articles were like the british did poorly and like in the same realm of like talking about gertrude and with the dividing up the middle east as i talked to before you know iraq uh she was quote on several occasions to advocate for starting a museum which is now the iraq museum because we land just like The land was full of antiquities and such. And she noted that. She noted the rich, rich culture of the Middle East and advocated for preservation. Was it the best way of going about it? Probs, most definitely not. However, she did do a lot of advocating that I can't tell if she didn't do the advocating, would someone have just thrown it away? Like that's my thinking of this, where we now put this perspective. And as Lexi said, that a lot of maybe the research may have been debunked or theories and ideas have changed, new evidence comes to light. So at the time, she was protecting this in the best way she could, protecting this culture and all these antiquities that they were just digging up while they were creating lines for a new country. On our last vignette, I just had to do this because if you know some archaeologists, they can die in a suspicious manner. A la Lord Carnarvon with his mosquito bite uh, that spurred the mummy curse of King Tut. So Gertrude had already formed the Iraq boundaries, and she was made Honorary Director of Antiquities in Iraq and founded the Baghdad Archaeological Museum, and later a wing. The museum was dedicated in her honor. She is openly describing herself as antiquarian at heart. Now that the scene is set, she is flourishing in life. It is the prime, as other archaeologists who have died a suspicious death just before her 58th birthday. She died due to a sleeping tablet overdose and has not been confirmed, whether if it was like on accident or not. All articles, all information just leave it as like, we don't know, we never will also all the people who could ever be like actually I slipped her a sleeping pill or died since and I really don't know how to end this story I think ending it on Susan's note with saying like whether to praise her work or not or study from her I think you should absolutely study from her reading I put a lot of her like primary sources and a lot of stuff that she wrote in the show notes um take it from Susan maybe she did some boo-boo ow but like still did some fantastic work in a time where women were told repeatedly not to and kind of like shoved in a corner or not kind of like actually shoved in a corner of not doing such work. And I know from Gertrude Bell, she landed in my history class and we learned a lot from the Baghdad museum is still there. I believe a lot they of, they just what, got a lot of their artifacts back. From yes. The Bible museum yes. That's what it was. Recently. I was like, they, they were just in the, yes, Would we have all of this without Gertrude and doing something in the best way she did and could have done? I
0: love that. I feel like there's going to be a common theme here that these ladies are cool, but colonialism bad. We are taking a break from spooky stuff to talk about archaeologists, but my lady has a spooky witch connection that we'll get into in a bit. Margaret Alice Murray was born July 13th, 1863, a cancer in Calcutta, India. One of my sources called her Anglo-Indian. So I was like, okay, so part English, part Indian. Sure, 1863, that seems like it could be feasible. Nope, just an all English child born in British India because of colonialism. So that was kind of disappointing. Anyways. Margaret's family was very wealthy uh, and had quite a few Native Indian servants, which Loki radicalized Margaret. She didn't become a radical, but she was significantly less conservative than her family because of her interactions with Indians. When Margaret was seven, her parents sent her back to England for some schooling, which was pretty common for English people living in India to send their children like back to live with family in the motherland, as it were, for fear that they would become, quote, too Indian, which is quite a bit to unpack, and not what we're here for. But Margaret credited living with her uncle John in Berkshire as having sparked her interest in archaeology. In 1873, Margaret's mother took her and her sister Mary, which is the same name, to live and study in Germany for two years, where Margaret learned German, which is a surprise tool that will help her later. Over the next several years, Margaret bounced back and forth between England and Calcutta, requiring a lot of training in nursing and landing a job at a Calcutta hospital. But her father did not approve and said she could only do it for three months. An internship, if you will. When she tried to get a job as a nurse in England, like away from her misogynist father, the hospital said she was too short because she was under five foot. What? Yeah. She was too short to be a nurse. Short people don't be nurses. But she didn't give up on her dream of helping people, so she became a social worker. And now we get into the archaeology story, which is why we're here. I just had to cover everything about her because she's so fascinating. In 1893, Margaret went to visit her sister, Mary, who was married and had a baby and was living in India, but who always had academic goals. And Mary told Margaret about some Egyptology classes that a man named William Flinders Petrie was teaching at University College London.
2: I low-key love this man just for his name. And his uh, yeah, name. his
0: name is Petrie. And Mary said to Margaret basically that she had to take those classes because Mary couldn't, you know, she was living in India. She was married. She had a baby. She couldn't like go to classes in London. There was no Zoom school, you know, like we've all
2: been doing for forever. What? You mean there was no Zoom school before computers were like in every single fucking household? Did you know there was no Zoom school before the pandemic? <laughs> also, not I not entirely they true. even had computers at this time. It was like or those big computers. I digress. Keep going. There were no computers, but anyway.
0: Computers Uh,
1: was people then.
2: True.
0: And UCL was pretty progressive for the time. They were admitting women when snooty universities like Oxford and Cambridge were not, uh, and were the first British university to give women degrees. So they admitted Margaret in 1894, even though she had no formal education. Uh, It had all kind of been homeschooling type stuff from her mother. And Petra was really impressed by Margaret. Uh, A lot of the like academic scholarly work, about Egyptology was written in German, which Petrie could not speak, but hey, remember how Margaret studied in Germany when she was 10? Hell yeah, super useful skill that made her really valuable in the field. Also impressive to Petrie was Margaret's transcription skills. She started copying and recreating inscriptions from the tombs that Petrie excavated in Egypt for his books and articles, and Margaret became his chief illustrator. She started lecturing in archaeology at UCL in 1896, and basically ran the Egyptology department while Petrie was on digs in the winter. Digs in Egypt are in the winter, early spring, because it's too hot to dig in the summer, which is when most most other digs take place. Petrie was so impressed that he took Margaret on a dig with him for the 1902-1903 season at Abydos and the 1903-1904 season at Saqqara, which are both ancient Egyptian burial sites. Margaret Wrote and published both reports uh, after every dig. This is like some shop talk, a little bit context for the non-archaeologist listeners. But basically after every dig, you write up what you found and how you did it and all this. And sometimes if you find something really cool, you publish the report in a journal. But you have to have it. She also started publishing books about Egyptology marketed for the general British public to capitalize on this, quote, Egyptomania that was widespread in Britain and actually led to Petrie teaching those courses that intrigued Margaret in the first place. It was like an effort to professionalize Egyptology and make people really understand what it was. In 1908, Margaret oversaw the unwrapping of an Egyptian mummy. In fact, one from the Tomb of the Two Brothers, which is infamous in archaeological circles for no homoing, a tomb of two dudes who were obviously in romantic love with each other, They're depicted in marriage type poses on the walls and they were buried next to each other instead of with their wives and children. But old-timey archaeologists were like, nope, brothers. We can discuss whether or not we should be unwrapping them. Best friends, guys being dudes. Maybe they were roommates. Oh my God, they were roommates. We can discuss whether or not we should be unwrapping mummies from an ethical standpoint another time, but for the moment, it is very cool that a woman was overseeing this, kind of like the things that we've been saying with Gertrude Bell, like some of this is not cool stuff, but it's very cool for a woman to be doing it at the time. When World War I broke out in 1914, Margaret was unable to return to Egypt and so shifted her focus closer to home and began to study English folklore and witchcraft. Hello, connection to spooky season. And there's an article in Further Learning uh, a little bit more about what she wrote and how a lot of it was kind of wrong, but it did shape modern Wicca pretty heavily. Give a look at that. That's pretty, it's very cool, but not really related to archaeology, or I, I could make this story go on forever. After the war, she returned to excavation, mostly in the Mediterranean at those like islands like Malta. She was involved in the first wave feminism movement, or as we renamed it in episode 27, the first tributary feminism movement, and was a member of the Women's Social and Political Union and advocated for women's equality at UCL until she retired from the university in 1935. After her retirement, she led a small dig at Petra in Jordan and kind of faded from the academic spotlight a little. She moved to Cambridge at the start of World War II to escape the London Blitz, and continued her work in folklore, even becoming president of the Folklore Society in 1953 when she was 90 years old. During an interview when she was 96, she said, quote, I've been an archaeologist most of my life, and now I'm a piece of archaeology myself. In 1962, she moved into a hospital for what would be the rest of her life. The next year, 1963, when she turned 100 years old, she published two final books, one called The Genesis of Religion Uh, in which she argued that the first deities were goddesses who became gods over time. And her last book, an autobiography titled My First Hundred Years. Uh, On November 13th, 1963, Margaret Alice Murray died at exactly 100 years and four months old. One of my sources said that she was still planning research for the future when she died, and I would love to believe that to be true. I was really inspired by her. I'm not going to lie.
1: You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady LadyHistoryPod. Our show notes and our transcript of this episode and our merch will be on LadyHistoryPod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show,
0: keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Instagram at girlbomb.productions. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us. Next time on Lady History.
2: next week on lady history it is spooky season and it is the witching hour so we're gonna talk about our favorite witches yes i know i am are you you yeah yep we'll see